Uh, here we are, ladies and gentlemen. It's November. Happy November. Two months left of the year. And one more month of this show before I go on my hiatus in the words of Puppetanity's Chuck D. Let's bring the noise. FM Podcast Network. I am Charlie Taylor, and this is What's Good. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. Hope you've all had a good week in the circumstances. Yeah, I've uh, got one more month until the hiatus, and uh, I'm really looking forward to it. Um, you know, I I do enjoy doing WG, obviously, every week, um, and this will be one of five episodes left um, until... Uh, the 30th of November, which, convenient enough, you know, so it just finishes right on the last day as well, which is uh, very, very convenient. Um, something I wanted to bring up um, for next year, um, just to, you know, just getting ahead of the game. Um, I'm going to move What's Good uh, back to Wednesdays, because um, I like saying What's Good Wednesdays instead. Um, I think I moved it to Thursdays just to appease In Search of Source, um, and now that In Search of Source is on, uh, ice at this point, um, everybody involved has been, you know, just, uh, focusing on their careers and, you know, have been, uh, flourishing their own, in their own ways this year. Um, but yeah, just, uh, I just wanted to move it back to Wednesdays, um, cause I feel like that was just the... That's just the best place for it, in my mind, to Bosque Wednesdays. It just sounds better to me. Um, but yeah, uh, we're going to be doing that um, once 2024 kicks in. Um, but yeah, um, focusing on November. Um, actually, November's looking pretty freaking good. I, I Honestly, I, I expected November to be terrible. And, you know, fingers crossed, knock on wood, right? It's not terrible. Um, but yeah, I thought it would be just not great. But um yeah, I feel like uh, there's some good stuff in the pipeline. Um, I have, if all goes well, um, I will have four interviews for you guys um, coming through. Um, one of them will drop during December, so that'll be one of the pods for you to step to while I'm on my hiatus. Um, I've got a couple of 30 questions um, in the pipeline, in the, well, not in the pipeline, but just in in the bag, really, in the bank, just sitting there. Um, I need. I still need to edit them. I think. Um, so I'll get on that at some point. Um, but yeah, just need to. Um, just got those. Um, got those packaged up. Um, a few of those. Um, hopefully that will. Um, suffice for December for the month of December. If not, hopefully. Um, as I said, I've got potentially four interviews coming. Um, I'm hopefully going to London for one as this episode drops on Thursday. Um, hopefully that goes down, and I have two up, two more next week um, to do, and I've got another one um, that I'm actually not going to be hosting. Um, I'm not going to be hosting the interview, but um, I got an email asking, you know, to for an interview to be done, and I put um, aforementioned search a source uh, co-host Brandon Hill is going to be um, hopefully uh, doing one of those. Uh, with a very just a uh, fascinating subject, and uh, going to be talking to yeah, just a really 
we're just talking to a couple of authors, man. It's just really, really fascinating. I just don't know how that's come about. Um, but yeah, hopefully those go well. I'm currently reading up for one of them. Um, so yeah, that's uh, those. Those are all in the pipeline. Hopefully, will be coming through. I hate announcing shit um, or just mentioning stuff for them not to happen. But um, you know, hopefully, hopefully they do go down. Um, and yeah, so might have four interviews sometime. Uh, to maybe appease just regular episodes to be honest um you know i feel i feel like there's a a lot of things going on um and we're actually going to be talking about that uh, the concept of that of everything going to shit um in the first segment of this episode um but yeah you know i'm just looking at the dates and if all goes well might have an interview next week the week after that and the week after that and then one more on the 30th um just regular just a regular episode for the 30th just to you know say bye and you know, put you on to what I'm going to be doing throughout the month of December. Um, so, yeah, that's that's the plan. We shall see how that goes down, uh, see how that all kicks out. Uh, but, yeah, we have this show to do, so let's get into it. We have uh, a world t- world segment, two society, and a media segment. And uh, with that said, formatities before we begin, email, socials, uh, writing, all that in the full show notes, as well as the music for the pod and other podcasts under the 5 EPN. Go give them a spin new or old um, just finished our uk black ocean series on digging in digits really enjoyed doing those and uh, really getting deep into you know uk hip-hop history which i feel like you know i was com- even now and uh the deeper we go is going to be just uh even more just uh it's gonna it's gonna invoke even more wonder with me personally of just like oh wow there's actually you know there's actually a world here um to actually dig into and i really appreciate that um but yeah that's all we got going let's get into the episode let the beat drop let's get into it in a week where black exploitation legend Richard Roundtree dies aged 81. South Africa beats New Zealand for the Rugby World Cup. Actor Matthew Perry dies aged 54. Meta launches a paid-for version of Instagram and Facebook. Get fucked on that. And lastly, Charles, King Charles obviously, uh, visits Kenya uh, to petitions of demands for apologies and reparations. Let's see how Kenya goes about for that. And even, even I think he arrives today as I as I record, or tomorrow, I forget, sometime this week, and there's already been, um, (coughs) excuse me, there's already been, um, uh, what's the word, uh, uh, plans to just basically quell the protests, you know, because can't have the peasantry amongst the king, can we? Um, Unless it's obviously, you know, state-sanctioned, and we can't have non-state-sanctioned protests, can't have that. Anyway... Let's jump right into the first topic. Um, this is the world segment. And uh, this is also do with a concept called polycrisis. Um, so let's uh, figure out what that means. Uh, this is written, written by Thomas Homer Dixon via a Vox. And it's called Why So Much Is Going Wrong at the Same Time. Let's jump right in. Is the world facing a polycrisis? Is there even such a thing? First coined in the late 1990s, the term entered the zeitgeist earlier this year when polycrisis became the neo- neologism, neo- neologism du jour. 
at most re- can't just say like regular shit like neologism neolog neologism neologism crazy toujours and the most recent World Economic Forum meeting in Davos. Its use provoked, evoked the uh, world's current tangled mess of problems, pandemic, war, climate extremes, energy shortages, inflation, rising authoritarianism, and the like, and the term caught on. Inevitably, critics have multiplied since then, as have crises, such as the violence now convulsing Israel and Gaza. Those on the political centre and right say the polycrisis concept is nothing more than a fancy buzzword. Sure, a lot of bad stuff is happening in the world, but that's always been the case. As historian Nar Ferguson has scoffed, the polycrisis is, quote, just history happening, unquote. For Ferguson and other critics, the concept merely recycles old alarmist Malthusian tropes. We can count on well-established counterbalancing forces, forces they argue, including free market, price uh, mechanism, to keep today's crises from causing widespread harm. Yeah, because the free market really does a lot. Uh, meanwhile, critics on the left say that the polycrisis idea distracts attention, perhaps deliberately, from the real driver of humanity's traumas, relentless predatory globalised capitalism. The ruckus the term has sparked, though, su- suggests is tapping some irksome truths. One is the assertion, implicit in the notion of polycrisis, that what's happening today is essentially new. This idea particularly vexes critics on the political central rights because it suggests that dominant economic and social structures need to radically change to accommodate our new reality. These critics would rather believe that humanity has been in similar circumstances before, and since we've coped well before, supposedly, we'll cope again without changing things much. That whole paragraph just pisses me off. Um, Groupthink helps sustain this comfortable belief. Edom Adam Tooze, uh, the Columbia uh, University historian who has been among the most thoughtful proponents of the polycrisis concept, makes the case for novelty only tepidly, saying... Uh, saying the world exhibits a broadening synthesis of uh, long-established trends and new phenomena. But in new reality, the new phenomena are now reconfiguring and even overwhelming old trends at an accelerating rate. We've moved so far and so fast outside our species' previous experience that many elites don't have the cognitive frame to grasp our situation, even were... It's supposed to say even where, but there's no H in it, so even were they inclined to do so? I'm assuming it's where. To see how novel today's world really is, and how this novelty is helping to generate today's polycrisis, let's compare humanity's past and present state on four key measures. The list isn't remotely exhaustive, but easily enough to make a case. The most basic measure is, number one, total human energy consumption. Driven largely by social use of cheap fossil fuels, energy consumption has increased sixfold since 1950. Since that date, we've consumed about 60% of all the energy we've produced in our species' existence. No other factor has, transfor- has so transformed the economics of human, human civilization. Prior to the first industrial revolution in the 18th century, societies used between half and three quarters of their economic output to get the energy they needed. Since 1950, that proportion has fallen to less than 10%. And as we've metabolized immense quantities of fossil fuels, we've also transformed the physical and ecological face of the planet, most importantly by shifting, number two, Earth's energy balance. From the evolution of modern humans to the 20th century, the amount of energy arriving on Earth from space, mainly visible light from the sun, was roughly balanced by the amount of going back out, mainly in the form of heat and reflected light. 
but now less energy is going out than coming in, because our greenhouse gas emissions are trapping more heat in the atmosphere. The imbalance is at least 0.9 watts per square meter at the planet's surface. Perhaps that doesn't seem like a big deal, but the extra energy adds up fast. It's equivalent to placing a standard 1,200 watt hot plate turned to its maximum setting, enough to boil a quart of water in five, five minutes. In the middle of each patch of Earth's surface, the size of an average American lot, uh, aggregated across a t- Earth's entire surface is the amount of energy that would be released by detonating 600,000 Hiroshima-sized atomic bombs every day. Injected into our oceans and atmosphere, this extra energy is not just heating things up, as we've seen with off-the-chart temperatures this past summer. Obviously, you talked about that that's on here a few weeks ago. It's also revving up the planet's hydrologic system, the cycle of water between Earth's surface and the air which in turn is supercharging the increasingly extreme uh, storms, floods, droughts, and wildfires appearing everywhere now. It's like we've unleashed a massive beast, a behemoth or leviathan, that's rampaging across the planet's surface. Each year, as more and more energy arrives at Earth's surface and goes back out, we pump more energy into the beast so it gets bigger and does more damage. This change in the planet's physical properties is causing knock-on effects on global food output, mass migration, economic growth, and civil stability that are already sucking trillions of dollars of wealth out of the global economy. All by itself is enough to establish that humanity's situation is now fundamentally different. I actually mentioned to a couple of friends um, a few days ago, someone I learned that, um, you know, beer and wine you know, out, well, beer and wine specifically, um, are going, are they, the tastes over time are going to change for the worse and they're going to be more expensive. So imagine beer now and as somebody that doesn't drink beer and just doesn't really see the, see the hype about it, um, tastes like just, just don't taste great to me, right? Imagine it tasting worse and more expensive then. <laughs> Just, just made me laugh, honestly. As my, as my boy cracks open a Heineken, um, as I talk, literally, that's how it happened. Which is just, uh, that's why I brought it up. But you know, just responds by cracking open a Heineken. That's terrible. Anyway, but we've also seen a huge increase in dot 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 number three, the human population's total biomass. In a hundred twenty, in the hundred twenty-five years between eighteen hundred and nineteen twenty-five. The world's population approximately doubled from 1 billion to 2 billion. In the near 100 years since, it has quadrupled again to 8 billion, with a total mass of just under 400 million metric tons. Vastly higher energy inputs to agriculture for mechanization, irrigation, fertilizer production, and the like made this faster growth possible. Without fossil fuels, in other words, our population would be a fraction of what it is today. In fact, about a third of the carbon in our bodies, totaling about 3 kilograms on average, originate in the coal, oil, or natural gas we've collectively burned. The carbon atoms have passed from the atmosphere through our crops, photosynthesis, and into our bodies through food consumption. Mushed all together, our total biomass would fill a cube about 750 meters on a side. That might not seem like much, except that we now constitute the second most massive single species on the planet. Cows come in first, with a total biomass about 5% larger than us. Sometime in the last two decades, as our population grew, we supplanted Antarctic krill for the number two spot. Both global warming and overfishing threatened to deplete krill biomass further. Domesticated sheep, which is also a single species, rank number four. By itself, growth in our biomass 
isn't a reason for alarm, but it helps cause today's poly crisis in combination with soaring dot 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 number four connectivity of the human population. Aircraft, container ships, fiber optic cable, satellites, oil tankers, and pipelines are all conduits for unprecedented circumplanetary flows of matter, energy, organisms, and information. Between 1980 and 2020, the number of air passengers nearly tripled to 1.8 billion annually. Air freight increased sixfold to 180 billion ton kilometers per year. Ton kilometers? How's that? I don't know. Um, and I'm not smart enough to even think about that. Ton kilometers? Didn't even know that was the thing. Um, and in their usage, rose from virtually zero to 60% of the world's population between 1980 and 2022. The total value of world merchandise trade increased 12-fold to nearly $25 trillion at current prices, while container port traffic has more than tripled since 2000 to almost 800 million 20-foot equivalent units in 2020. Abundant fossil fuel energy and innovation such as containerization boosted this connectivity by permitting ever greater amounts of stuff to be carried along the world's conduits at relatively low cost. The end of the Cold War in the 1990s was also essential because it allowed international diffusion of neoliberal economic norms and institutions that supported globalization of trade. Rivalry between the US and China is now weakening this regime. But the most vital cause of higher connectivity has been the ongoing collapse in the cost of communication. Decades of exponential improvements in computing power and in the communication systems that this power enables have driven the price of generating, storing and distributing a bit of information to near zero. Billions of us around the world now carry in our pockets a computer that would have filled 50 pentagons in the mid-1950s. We can use it to link almost instantaneously with nearly any of the other billions of computers and because this communication is so cheap we move among ourselves quantities of information that would have been incomprehensible barely more than a generation ago. Of the four uh, changes I've highlighted only the sharp increase in Earth's energy imbalance is unequivocally a bad thing at least for human well-being but all four are markers of an unprecedented transformation into humanity's circumstances, an explosive rise in human population, material consumption, connectivity, and global environmental impact beginning around 1950 that some scientists call the, quote, Great Acceleration, unquote. The acceleration of overall change is important, yet even more important are the less recognized casual interactions among discrete changes like the four I've highlighted, and it's these interactions that are generating today's polycrisis. Here's an example. Scientists have shown that ecological, technological, or social systems that are both highly connected and highly homogenous are especially prone to cascading failures, that is, to failures that resemble a row of dominoes falling over. High connectivity lets a disruption, for instance, a pathogen or external shock, move quickly from one part of a system to other parts. High homogeneity ensures the disruption's impact is similar across those parts. Think of a field planted with rows of genetically identical Identical, identical corn, identical corn. That's a tongue twister, isn't it? Identical corn, identical corn, identical corn, <laughs> identical corn. Uh, that would be even worse. All right. Um, the close proximity of the stalks <laughs> ensures high connectivity, so a blight can easily jump from one plant to another. Their genetic homogeneity ensures that the blight will be equally harmful across all plants. This is a major reason modern industrial agriculture relies so heavily on pesticides. The human population is now just like that field of corn. 
We're highly connected, largely genetically identical biomass, except in this case we're vastly more massive and our field extends across much of the planet's surface. And sure enough, we're exhibiting a monocrops vulnerability to pathogens, so we're using, uh, and in some cases of using, antibiotics and antivirals just the way we use pesticides on our crops. That's a really good visual, actually. Interesting. Um, of course, because we're a single species, we've always been genetically homogenous, and for millennia, we've also been somewhat connected by travel and trade which is why humanity has long experimented pandemics, experienced, pan, uh, experienced pandemics, sorry. But the combination of our homogeneity with our recently multiplied biomass and now our extra no extraordinary connectivity has created a qualitatively new situation. While in the 19th century, cholera took years to spread around the planet, and in 1918, and 1918 influenza took months, now infectio infectious pathogens travel to other sides of the world in weeks, our species have become by far Earth's most inviting medium for the rapid evolution and propagation of pathogens. Climate change is, a play is playing a role too, by disrupting habitats and forcing wild animals into close proximity to our populations, it's increasing the risk that pathogens not recognised by our immune systems will jump from animals to humans. It turns out that the field of corn analogy analogy uh, also applies to our world's financial systems uh, much of our shared technological manufacturing infrastructure and many of our food systems because these systems are not only uh, high, uh, only connected highly connected but also increasingly homogenous globally networked corporations like meta microsoft unilever cargill 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 and tesla lower their costs by and grow by standardizing their products across diverse national markets Similarly, global institutions like the International Organization for Standardization or the Financial Stability Board uh, increase their economic and political clout by bringing more people and nations under their rules ambit. Both processes have caused a progressive standardization of goods, services and procedures. Nearly everywhere in the world, for example, national economic systems, including central banks, ministry, ministries of finance and the like, now have similar designs. Financial instruments like types of stocks, bonds, and their derivatives are similar nearly everywhere too, as are core industrial processes, antibiotics, germplasm for essential crops, and livestock, fast food, restaurants, clothing, language of commerce, consumerist notions of the good life, and even blockbuster movies. For some kinds of goods and services, those that become more useful as more people use them, exhibiting what economists, economists call positive network externalities, standardization can be self-reinforcing, leading to market domination by a few products and producers. All over the planet, for instance, people choose from a handful of social media platforms and among basically two operating systems for both desktop, desktop computers, including laptops and tablets. How long have we got left? Um, we've got about 22 minutes in, so how many paragraphs we got left? Got about oh gosh, we've got a few paragraphs actually. <laughs> uh, okay. Let me finish. Let me finish with these uh, last two paragraphs here. So I'm skipping a couple of paragraphs, not too many, but I'm skipping a few. Um, but let me get into the last two just to finish up. But the thing we must do urgently is gain a better understanding of the polycrisis underlining uh, mechanisms. Why are so many of the world's critical systems tipping into negative territory simultaneously? 
We have only bits and pieces of the answer at the moment, largely because universities, corporations, think tanks and governments compartmentalise their expertise and attention into categories that align with systems, economic health, climate, uh, geopolitical and the like that they see in the world, so they tend not to see the interactions among those among these systems that propel the polycrisis, which means they are far less able to intervene effectively. Once again, the problem starts at the top. Our society's elites and the institutions they populate and constitute simply don't have the cognitive frame to grasp what's going on. They can improve their grasp, but first they should stop telling themselves that there's nothing new happening in the world. Yeah, and I wanted to go back to that paragraph of just, like, people on the centre and the right um, acting as if, you know, the issues that we face are just, you know, uh, extremely similar to, you know, what we go through, ne- uh, got, what we've gone through in the past. And that's just, that's just so fucking obtuse, it pisses me off. Like, going through um, COVID, and I wanted to, um, I was trying to find an article this week to um, relate to the COVID inquiry going on in the UK right now, um, which is, you know, it's going to go on for years, right? It's an inquiry, right? The, these things go on for years. Um, but, you know, it's just recently started. We've had the likes of um, David Cameron being questioned on, um, you know, his uh, austerity policies 10 years ago. And, you know, did that influence or did that set a foundation for, you know, not us not being prepared for COVID? And obviously he rejected that, the criminal that he is. Um, and then it gets to, you know, people like Dominic Cummings, who's, um, you know, just been chatting, uh, chatting his chat, um, throughout the past couple of days. And, uh, obviously Boris Johnson's going to have his moment, um, under the sun, uh, under the spotlight, um, which will be great for him, obviously, since, um, he's got a new, ch- he's got a show on GB News now. See, I keep, I keep fucking saying to you lot, they always fail up. They always fucking succeed. They can, they can kill all the people in the world, and they will still get, they will still get a fucking uh, hundred thousand to talk to some rich dudes. Like it doesn't matter. They always fail up, no matter what they do. Um, Liz Truss, great example. She's suddenly back in the frame, just chatting shit. And I'm just like, why are we? Why are you being listened to? Who? Go away. You should be exiled from every microphone ever. Like you should not be talking ever again. Um, but yeah, you know. The, the COVID inquiry is a one thing, right, where people just made the wrong decisions and, albeit um, very uh, heartlessly, made the wrong decisions. Um, you know, the WhatsApp texts are coming out right now. It's just crazy. Um, and, yeah, you know, the, the powers that be, once again, it just goes back to the powers that be. These people don't have the grasp. They don't understand the critical nature of all of these things and they just end up supporting Israel just for the hell of it um, just because um, the military industrial complex tells them to right? pretty much at this point um, especially for the US and UK um, and it's just uh, it's just, and then you know they can't see the forest through the trees they genuinely can't do that for anything um, they, reckon, they can recognise an issue don't get me wrong they can recognise an issue but then they just go the complete opposite way in how to figure that out and that sets us back All these, most of these decisions that they make sets us back and for every one step of progress there's maybe like 10 steps backwards and, uh, and that's just because of the government being fucking tools so you know it's incredibly easy to get nihilistic about this, but, um, you know, we've acknowledged it, have we not? So, we've acknowledged polycrisis, right? That's a concept. That may be a thing, right? But you may disagree with the concept, whatever, fine. But we can understand that shit's going on, and it's different 
in this world is different. The population's different. The the technology we use is extremely different. Now, with AI, for example, the the differences between technology today compared to this time last year is a, a, a genuine leap forward. And that's just one year. Think of 1950. <laughs> what do they say? Like fucking the, the tons of uh, my phone that I'm holding right now is basically like 50 50 uh, pentagons. Like that's, that's absurd. That's absurd to think about. So anyway, we're running out of time. Let's continue on. Let's jump into the first of these two society segments, and um, I feel like this is a good kind of move to another um, thing that's going on, and that is the concept of a generation gap. Now, you know, that's probably something that you've heard before, I've heard it before, and it doesn't really mean anything, you know, it's it's just human nature, right? The generations experience different things, right? Like we said with, during the polycrisis um, stuff, it's just... My parents went through different, different um, problems than I do, you know, and that's just that's just human nature. That's just how how things are going right now. That's just life, right? Um, that's just how you chalk it up. The generations are different. Even my sister's generation is different from my generation, and you know she's only ten years older than me. Um, but yeah, this is a this is a piece. I'm um, I'm not even sure if it's. Um, if it's uh, if it makes a a, a, a proper ar- <gasps> excuse me a good argument or not, but um, it's called the real chaos of the new normal. Um, it's by Dr. Jenny Bristow, who is a sociologist of generations. Oh, there you go. It's pretty fucking good. Uh, <laughs> a pretty good uh, authority on the concept of generation gaps. Um, this is by Unheard. So let's jump right. Generation gap is a term that trips neatly uh, off the tongue, often used to describe banal differences between older and younger people in matters of cultural taste, approaches to work, political opinion, and myriad other um, features of social life. Just yesterday, the Times added sex to that list, telling that uh, Gen Z, compared to the elders, are turned off by it. In reality, generation gaps are very rare. The UK's last experience of one was during the 60s, uh, when the Cultural Revolution that consumed Western Europe and North America led to an explosion of books and articles uh, trying to make sense of the apparent gulf between the generation that won the war and the kids growing up in peace. In my years researching generational conflict, I have cautioned against overheated claims that we are living through a period of strife between younger and older people. For instance, the argument that the baby boomers have taken more than their fair share of society's wealth and are bleeding young people dry with their triple lot pensions or their 60s generation are going uh, are to blame for climate change with their record of hedonistic consumerism and careless globetrotting. What? <laughs> okay, so is that... Is, are you are you refuting that? That's I feel, you know because they they do have a bit of blame there. Yeah, like what what are we doing here? The concept of you know power is paramount here, right? People that have power now are my parents' generation, and as we just as we just explained, people in power haven't been doing haven't been making the actual you know progressive moves to actually save the planet whatever that may be right whether it be agriculture or just climate in general etc etc 
right? So, are you reviewing that? Anyway. They, they, she literally just said that and then just continued on here. So, I was just, uh, just, we're just, uh, be confused. Um, I was firmly opposed to the COVID-19 lockdowns and wrote considerably, oh, that's, that's a, that's a hot take, opposed to the lockdowns, hmm, and wrote considerably about their de- de- deleterious, deleterious impacts on young people. Um, but I could never buy the line that these restrictions were designed to protect the old at the expense of the young. I don't. I don't think people said that about restrictions. I don't. I don't think. Not for me, anyway. I. I feel like I probably benefited from the lockdowns, if anything. Um, overall, but anyway, it wasn't grandma in charge of health policy after all, but that mewling toddler S Gen X and Matt Hancock. Sure, Gen X. There you go. Yeah, sure. You know, my sister's Gen X technically, so yeah, you can blame me on Gen Xs. Okay, that's fine. Sure. Um, yeah, I guess. Agree to disagree on, you know, the other stuff, but yeah, I'll give you that. Yeah, as we stagger through the unfolding permacrisis, I love that word, permacrisis of the 2020s, I perceive a true generation gap emerging, possibly as seismic as the 60s upheaval. This goes far beyond the everyday friction that exists between different generations as young people struggle to find their place in the world and older people struggle to guide them in a reality that is constantly changing. It is about the gap in which we all find ourselves, between the normal we grew up with and the chaos that we find ourselves navigating now. This is not the quote-unquote new normal confidently predicted by those who thought lockdowns would change the way we worked forever. In many ways, what is uh, striking is how much it feels like the old normal, as if the lockdown experience had has been memory hold, a memory hold. Uh, but we know deep down that something quite fundamental is changing. I feel you on that. I feel that. I feel that um, acutely. Actually, like I feel weird of how the same shit is. You know, it's just um, yeah. It does it even with the COVID inquiry that I was mentioning before. Um, you know, it needs to be said that a lot of people died <laughs> during that year, during those two years. Right, a lot of people died because of COVID, and I feel like people have just really moved on, just like that. And it's no. It's not much memory towards it, um, you know. It's not. There's a, obviously there's no particular day where we can, you know, like a like Remembrance Day, which is coming up, obviously. Um, you know, <coughs> don't wear poppies. Um, you know, hot take, but you know. Um, but uh, it's just weird. There's no particular because there's no day for it. There's no COVID day that we actually do. Maybe it should be lockdown. Maybe it should be the first day of lockdown that we had. I think it was like in March or late February. Maybe it should be something like that as a to force people to actually remember this shit, because I don't think people do, um, in in the in the way I think we should. And yeah, you know, it does feel weird how just uh, there's there's no new normal, but there's just uh, we kind of just went back to old shit and we just stopped caring. Anyway, generation gaps such as those evident in the period between the first and second world wars during and during the sixties emerge when there is a distinct and rapid shift in the social order. Such occurrences throw established norms, values, conventions, and institutions into disarray, without a consensus about what new form of order should replace them. Those in authority find themselves contested, while newer potential forms of authority jostle tetchily for uh, position. Calling the eye of the storm are young people coming into adulthood who are trying to make sense of themselves and their place in a society that is palpably at odds with itself. The tensions involved in integrating... Uh, involved in integrating young people into the social world during periods of rapid change have long been a staple of, quote, generation question, unquote, in the social sciences. 
An insightful collection published in 1963 uh, brought together contributions from sociologist Talcott Parsons and S.N. Eisenstadt, psychologist Eric Erickson, brilliant, uh, Bruno Bethelheim, uh, Kenneth Keniston. What are these names? Kenneth Kenneth Keniston, Eric Erickson, what is. And others in a properly dis- interdisciplinary, interdisciplinary stu- uh, discussion of what Karl Mannerheim back in the 20s had termed the problem of generations. Mannerheim observed our periods of uh, accelerated social change give rise to distinctive forms of generational consciousness, in which people on the cusp of adulthood develop a very, or- very different orientation to the world than that of their elders. This temporal dislocation can result in a schism between the generations, as young people being closer to the problems of their time, quote, are dramatically aware of a process of destabilization and the takes uh, and take sides in it, while the older generation cling to their reorientation that had been the drama of their youth, unquote. Friction between generations is therefore both the product of wider social and cultural conflict and helps to cause it. Here, generation gaps mark a break in continuous time, forcing an abrupt re-evaluation of how we understand our society and what we can take for granted. And as every parent of teenagers will be sharply aware, the conflicts don't stop at the front door, because generations also operate at a family level. These tensions invariably also arise from and bleed into conflicts between parents and children. Back in 1940, sociologist Kingsley Davis identified, quote, the rates of a social change, unquote, as one of the key variables in the production of parent-youth conflict. Within a, quote, fast-changing social order, he explained, the time interval between generations, ordinarily but a mere moment in the life of a social system, becomes historically significant, thereby creating a hiatus between one generation and the next, unquote. It is this sense of hiatus that seems to characterise the historical moment that we are currently experiencing. After decades of stasis in which the collapse of communism led Fukuyama to contend that history had reached its end, we seem to have entered a period of dramatically destabilising social change. From international conflicts escalating abroad to the culture wars ripping Western nations apart at home, the old order is clearly unravelling. But what comes next is far from decided. The historian Robert Wall described uh, the First World War generation as, quote, wanderers between two worlds, unquote. A century on, to some extent, it feels like we are walking in their shoes. Of course, we are living in very different circumstances, but even if our present culture wars don't uh, claim the physical casualties of a military conflict, we shouldn't underestimate their destructive trajectory or the level of destabilization revealed by the vicious battle over questions such as what is a woman. Nor should we deny that young people, as in any conflict, are on the front line, either propelled there by dramatic idealism and a desire for change, or deployed as as cannon fodder by the elites running the show. That's a great paragraph. That's a really good paragraph. Just thinking of the youth, actually, in that prism is really, really freaking good. Um, Because, you know, a lot of the times people politicians especially you know they reference children in the decisions they make when they even might have children but i don't feel they make they don't make decisions i feel they don't they don't make decisions with children in mind they make decisions with money in mind they make decisions with the military industrial complex in mind they 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 make decisions with power uh, retention in mind you know what i mean that's 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 who they think about they don't think about the children fuck that shit they don't think about them unless you know um children would be um the 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 one billion in uh uh, child um, 
the one, uh, the one billion uh, cuts, uh, one billion in cuts they've made, choose two child services in the past decade, um, would be would be you know would be done again. <laughs> would be given back. You know what I mean? Put that one billion back in and more, but they don't do that. Why don't they? I just gave you the answers, but anyway. But there are some more important ways uh, we can make uh, this less bloody. First, we should be very clear that young people are socialised into and come to live by ideas that are not their own. The spotlight has recently fallen on the aggressive promotion of contested statements about gender ideology, sorry, racialised thinking and climate emergencies by schools and universities, leading to concerns about the blurring, uh, of, the blurring of the line between education and indoctrination. It would be naive to think that kids coming home uh, fluent in the language of LGBTQIA um, or distraught uh, that forest fires herald uh, the imminent end of the world are divining an enlightened new reality of their own accord. These ideas are being taught rather than conceived. Yet as young people grow into adulthood, they do start thinking for themselves. Like me! Uh, They are not passive recipients of indoctrination, but alive to both the internal uh, contradictions and wider criticisms of the things they have been brought up to believe. Yeah, to believe, the positioning of student activists as the voice of a generation, whether for better or worse, misses the fact, as Kathleen Stock, uh, Kathleen Stock has argued, many university students quote tend to be sensitive, curious, idealistic, but not fanatical, and genuinely want to understand the world. But they also want to play with ideas, with jokes, with each other. Unquote. Precisely because they are growing into adulthood during a period of cultural strife. Young people from all walks of life are absorbing a range of ideas and making them their own. A second bulwark against uh, outright generational conflict is the existence of some friction between their generations. For all the zeitgeist pushes uh, young people to reject the advice and guidance of their elders, they are crying out for it. Not at least something, uh, not not least as something to argue against. Children have always pushed boundaries in order to work themselves out, yet parents and teachers are increasingly warned that boundaries threaten a child's self-esteem and identity, and that what they should be doing instead of is infirming uh, how children feel about themselves. Though presented as an act of compassion and understanding, the culture of affirmation is better understood as the rationalisation of neglect, shying away from their responsibility to guide their children, adults place the full burden of their children's fleeting choices upon their immature shoulders. It's easy to flatter ourselves that we are being nicer, kinder adults by avoiding confrontation, but confrontation is sometimes exactly what the young need from us. Hmm. Interesting. Uh, we must remember this as we seek to address our the new generation gap. Our sense of the world is shifting. In times of both chaos and stasis, society is always a mess of people with diverse ideas, experiences, and personalities. Life in communities does not conform uh, to the shrill dichotomies of the online culture wars, and our physical, everyday interactions counter the relentless cultural pessimism of the co- uh, current political movement. In the midst of a punishing cost of living crisis, escalating intellectual tensions, crumbling infrastructure, health service on its knees, and an education system fatally wounded by its lockdown-imposed gap year, we are surrounded by people trying to make things work. Exhausted doctors, nurses, care workers, and teachers demonstrate levels of professionalism and commitment that never make the news. Railway staff fighting replacement by machines act as a dangerous reminder of why people do the job better. Parents carry on having arguments with their kids, showing that they care enough to be unpopular. Life in the hiatus goes on. And if it feels that we are biding our time uh, until the next disaster strikes, maybe that's no bad thing. 
who reminds our children that this strange temporal dis- dislocation is a storm that will that we will all have to weather, and that this new generation gap is not unbridgeable, provided we remember to keep a foot in the in both the old world and the new. Yeah, okay, so but yeah, well then that last point, what what do you mean by the old world and the new and keeping a foot in it? Because you know, I feel like uh, while there's plenty of you know, obviously you learn about old shit. You know, the 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 problem with people, uh, the problem with especially the education system not learning about history properly, is that we don't get taught history in a in a in a in a in a caring way. And because of that, we just start given whatever, you know, we're given Tudors, we're given World War Two, but we're not given, you know, Winston Churchill as a whole, um, as a complex figure, you know. I feel like if we learned about Winston Churchill as a complex figure, um, a- as is total, not just through the prism of, you know, he led us through World War Two, and instead looked at a person who, yes, led us through World War Two, but also was a genocidal fucking maniac, right? That would be very. That would give so much. Just that. Just that one. Just make it a unit. Make it one term of history. Imagine how much that would shape somebody, where we can actually pin someone on the wall and say this person did a very good thing for a few years, and the rest of his life was fucking demon demon time. <laughs> right there, you go. And then let them glean from that. And not just this varnished uh, account of this guy who smoked cigars and, you know, led us through a fucking war and then said, you know, fight him on the beaches. That's not his life. That wasn't his entire life. He got kicked out of being a prime minister after the war. Why was that, I wonder? Good question. Let's ask that question. What happened before he was uh, before he before the Second World War? Oh right, he was a genocidal fucking maniac. Let's put that in. Just that one person, that one unit of history could benefit a lot, right? And I feel you know a lot of it comes down to education for me, um, you know. And um, I feel you know social media does a lot in terms of teaching, uh, in terms of giving the youth, um, you know, tools to tools to learn for better or worse. Um, you know, they might watch things and, you know, become more well-rounded, but they also might become Andrew Tate dick suckers. So, you know, it's, 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 that's the, that's the, that's the challenge there, but that, that requires, you know, that, that's when parenting comes in, right? And actually, you know, policing, not policing, but, um, instead interrogating what they actually learn. Um, but anyway, uh, it's a fascinating concept of just the generational gap and, you know, I feel like, um, you know, um, there are some things where there's a big there's a big gulf, but there's also some things where, you know, we're kind of the same. And at the end of the day, I feel like we're all trying to just get our footing. Um, I'm trying to find my feet in the world, and you know, so is my mum when it comes to being on the internet. <laughs> so it's a we're all trying to find our feet somewhere. Okay, we're on our third, and this is the other society segment, and I feel like this episode is going to go well above an hour. <laughs> the rare one. The rare one's going to go above an hour. Um, so let's jump right into this one. This is by The Conversation. Uh, it's by Amanda Cole, who is lecturer in the Department of Language and Linguistics at the University of Essex. Um, it's called Cockney, and Queen's English have all but disappeared among young people 
excuse me, um, here's what here's what's replaced them. And um, I'd like to draw you to also a long read I did um, a while back. I'm going to try and find it as I, as I talk. Um, but it was talking about um, one particular side of it, um, which was uh, multicultural uh, London English. Um, so let me just type that up. Multi, multicultural uh london english um yeah so it's a long read in august uh 2015 uh, 2015 <laughs> april 15th there you go that's when it dropped in april uh 2022 so it was last year um so i don't know well, i put it as a bonus episode so that doesn't really fucking help in terms of like episode numbers <laughs> uh, it doesn't really help with episode numbers um but yeah let me try and uh, get it before uh, before i continue here um, so yeah, where we at? May, April, so around around episode 174, um, right, okay, so yeah, after 172, after episode 172, um, it's right after that, um, so yeah, if you want to go spin that, go deep in the archives for that one, and that was a very fascinating one, so this one actually kind of links towards that as well, so, uh, and I feel like this will, oh, uh, I'll let you see it already, it says, uh, multicultural London English here, so there you go, so let's jump right I just love this concept. I love the conversation of linguistics and how people speak and how it evolves. It's fascinating, especially now. Um, Cockney, Cockney, and uh, received pronunciation, uh, Queen's English, were once spoken by people of all ages, but they are no longer commonly spoken among young people in the southeast of England. In new research, colleagues and I recorded the voices of 193 people between the ages of 18 and 33 from across southeast England and London. We then built a computer algorithm which listened to how they spoke and grouped them by how similarly pronounced vowels in how they similarly how similarly they pronounce vowels in different words. We identify three main accents standard Southern British English, multicultural London English, and estuary English. Interesting. What defines these accents? Around twenty six percent of our participants spoke estuary English, which has similarities with Cockney, but is more muted and closer to received pronunciation. The people in our sample who spoke estuary English would pronounce words like house, a bit like has, but not as extreme as you would find in Kilney. Estuary English is spoken across the southeast, particularly uh, in parts of Essex, and is similarly, similar to how Stacey Dooley, Ollie Murs, Adele or Jay Blade speak. So, ass, has. Uh, standard Southern British English, uh, which many perceive as a prestigious, standard, or neutral sounding accent, this is probably me to be fair, is a modern, updated version of received pronunciation. SSBE speakers, who make uh, who made up 49% of our sample, tended to say words like goose, uh, with their tongue further forward in the mouth, sounding a bit more like geese. So, gee, goose, goose, uh, I don't know, sounding a bit more like geese. How would you How would you pronounce that then? How do you pronounce goose like geese? Goose, geese. I don't, I don't know. Then, uh, anyway, this change even happened in the accent of Queen Elizabeth II over her lifetime. We could probably consider Eddie Goulding, Josh Widdicombe, and maybe even Prince Harry to speak with this accent. Oh, thank fucking me then. We found that speakers of a standard Southern British SSBE, because I keep saying that now, and Estuary English generally tended to be white British, and women were more likely than men to speak the former. It's not surprising to find that women speak in a socially prestigious way. As much uh, previous research suggests, women are often more chastised for speaking with regional accents than men. That makes sense. Um, Notably, standard uh, SSBE and Estuary English are not as different uh, from each other as Cockney and receive pronunciation. 
This can be evidence of what's known as dialect levelling, where young people from different parts of the region now speak more similarly to each other than their parents or grandparents did. This occurs as a result of the increased movement of people, resulting in greater contact between dialects, the growth of universal education and literacy, and people buying into the idea that there is a correct or standard way of speaking. This is not to say there are no new or innovative ways of speaking today. Uh, One example is an accent... Uh, which linguists call, here we go, multicultural London English, first noted in recent decades in the speech of young East Londoners. This accent has similarities with Kilkney uh, and other southeastern accents, uh, but has has influences from other languages and dialects of English. The young people with a multi-MLE accent, uh, around 25% in the sample, said the vowels uh, in words like bait, I'm assuming bait, B-A-T, bait, and boat, uh, with the uh, tongue starting at uh, a point higher up in the mouth compared to standard Southern British English. Uh, I wish they put SSBE, because I'm sick of saying that whole thing, so that they might sound a little bit more like bet and bot. I don't know. Um, They tended to be Asian British or uh, black, uh, Black British, and many were from London. But there were also people from across Southeast who spoke with elements of an MLE accent. Bikaya Sakar, Lil Sims, and Stormzy could be examples of people who speak with these features. Cockney, the working class Lon- uh, London accent of Barbara Windsor or Michael Caine, and received pronunciation which some call Queen's English or perhaps now King's English, do not appear in our analysis. That's not to say that they aren't uh, that there aren't any young people in our sample who might have spoken these accents, but if so, they were too few and too far between. Uh, too few and far between for the algorithm to identify. For decades, some educators, politicians, and commenters, uh, commentators have expressed concern that pr- received pronunciation is being replaced by Australian English, allegedly representing a decline in standards. In 1995, the then Education Secretary Julian Shepherd vowed to combat the growth of slang among school children and the spread of Australian English. In 2014, facing criticism for airing regional accents, the BBC stated that they do not aspire to be a guardian of received pronunciation and sometimes called BBC English. Uh, Estuary English and Multicultural MLE are uh, both often criticised and devalued. Research has shown that Londoners who don't speak MLE think of it as a form of broken language, language decay or fake language. Linguists have ardently pushed back against unfounded claims that multicultural London English has pushed out Cockney, uh, that it represents a dumbing down of language or that it is inauthentic. There is no scientific or logical argument to support the idea that the accent that these accents are inferior, less articulate or less grammat- grammatically rich than the other accent. Uh, they simply reflect where a person is from and their background and experiences. Uh, the way accents are described feeds directly into how uh, the people who speak with these accents are judged. Attempting to prevent accents from changing is like sweeping back an incoming tide with a broom, fruitless and defying nature. Instead, we should embrace linguistic diversity, work to combat accentism, uh, discrimination based on person's accent, and accept that accents will always continue to change. And again, I feel like I have a... I'm not unique, obviously, right? I'm, <laughs> but I feel like I have a, a a kind of accent that you know, really, really, it's not straight up, you know, Bukayo Saka, little sim storms, you right? Um, I try, I try not to say like all the time. Um, you know, I have a, I have a kind of pronounced 
way of speaking, but that's partly because I'm just doing reading and, you know, doing a podcast, but I feel like, you know, in general, you know, this is, I don't speak like this constantly, right, I don't, I'm kind of, I'm kind of upping myself a bit, um, if I was constantly talking how I talk, I'd probably be talking a little bit faster, I'd be, um, a little bit more, uh, there'll be a ton more slang and just be much more conversational um and i feel like i do that um you know in that uh do that in usual conversation but you know for a podcast i you know try and smooth off the edges let's just say that i try and smooth off the edges a bit i don't think i do king's english you know pronounce you like this you know um, i don't try and do this all the time this is not my steez of course um but you know i try and i try and smooth it out a bit um there's also um uh, another segment i did on this um pertaining specifically to the cockney dialect um that was episode 217 earlier in March so if you want to jump on that one as well you can do so but yeah man I just find this shit so fascinating I don't know why I just really I really enjoy this kind of research so it's always fun to bring up now and again So we finish off uh, with a media topic, and I only put media just to put it somewhere because uh, it's actually, you know, crosses uh, is very intersectional. Um, so this is about uh, a Substack piece um, that was actually given shout to Mickey, um, and it's via a Substack called Pain Baby. Interesting last name for a Substack, but anyway, um, and yeah, it talks about um, it's talking about Hassan 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 Minhaj. Um, and, uh, if you aren't aware, Hassan Minaj is a comedian, stand-up comedian, um, in America, um, Indian American, and, uh, you know, does very, in his stand-up specials especially, do very, uh, these very broad and, um, uh, extravagant storytelling, uh, weaving, uh, uh, stand-ups, basically, right? Um, but it's just very storytelling based. And uh, he was accused in the New Yorker a few weeks ago of basically just embellishing um, and just making up stories um, for, you know, kind of just uh, race race points. I don't know what you want to call it for sake of for lack of a better phrase. Um, but he recently responded uh, in his own way uh, through his own uh, platform um and is kind of interesting um this article uh, this substack um called why we need to keep talking about hassan minaj is actually a good um, intersection between um him as a comedian as a public voice and uh, the and obviously what's going on in gaza um so let's jump right in and uh see what's going on on this one at the time of my beginning to draft this, Gaza Strip had no internet. For two days, we, uh, we were cut off from reports from the ground. Imagine what those who would carpet bomb an entire people in broad daylight would wait to do under cover of darkness. I kept thinking about Operation Searchlight, the stories of what happened where no one could see, how I exist because my parents survived. I keep thinking about Wadea al Fayoum, a Palestinian-American six-year-old stabbed to death in his Chicago home by his own landlord. What it must be like for 30, his 32-year-old mother. How Wadea is now a symbolic descendant of Alan Kurdi, the new poster child for the consequences of global political silence, far from being the only Palestinian child murdered in the past 23 days. 
Uh, Palestinians are calling for us to keep posting, protesting, boycotting, calling Congress and otherwise sustaining our attention to atrocity. We must show that this time we won't take our boots off the colonizers' neck. The pitch of outrage, however, is hard to maintain. The grief is staggering. My attempts to send this out Sunday as planned kept ending in enraged imp- impotent tears. Uh, when we are able to lean into sustaining practices, the call is to implement a consistent drumbeat of dissent, too loud and too deep in its vibrations to ignore. Though we can keep, up, keep this up as individuals and groups on social media, at protests, fundraisers and other gatherings, we need, to, we need thought leaders with large platforms to keep us engaged and thinking in nuanced and complex ways as the situation evolves. Heavy with foreboding, I need wise, nuanced and precise voices I can trust. People who understand my cultural and faith per- perspectives, who don't struggle to see Palestinians as human beings, and who know personally the inherited violence of British colonial remapping. So, we need to keep talking about Hassan Minaj. I believe that political comedians have crucial power and that their voices are extremely necessary in the collective effort to sway global public opinion enough to make the siege on Gaza politically disadvantageous and economically risky. Uh, Sadly, it's clear that moral weight has little effect. I've been grieving uh, the weight of what that means about the human soul for days now. I remain without words. Normally, Hassan Minaj would be all over this, and likely doing incredible work disentangling historical fact from fallacy, propaganda from fact, and ethical responsibility from economic avarice. Instead, uh, the most prominent mainstream Muslim-American political voice in the United States is untangling the facts from fiction in his own work because of a New Yorker article that exposed a particular messiness that may have dented his career for a long time to come. Three weeks ago, I wrote about the importance of Hassan Minhaj as a, American, uh, mu- a Muslim-American public intellectual on the left and the profound, ha- profound harm done by his irresponsible negotiation of fact versus embellishment. Last week, Minhaj released a 20-minute video rebuttal which many asked me to assess. In my original take, the problems I had with um, Minhaj's work had to do with the consequences of playing with audiences' faith um, and how that faith is built. In short, in order to buy into a comedian shtick, we need to have a baseline idea of how they are playing with information for effect. And it's a comedian's responsibility to teach us, like any creative work, how to read them. Ultimately, my takeaway on the majority of the accusations against Minaj is the following. Minaj did a poor job of structuring his storytelling to properly help us distinguish between the persona of his comedic storytelling and his political storytelling. Though uh, he thought it was clear, it wasn't. Slate's Nadira Goff Goff, Goff, Goffe, Goff, as an E in the end, so uh, breaks down uh, the primary accusations and the responses to them. The details of which are a bit less my concern uh, than what this murky standoff means in the great landscape of mainstream Muslim American political critique. I'm also very interested in hearing more about whether the Patriot Act was misogynistic in their treatment of women fact-checkers and writers, but since the issue was settled out of court and most likely bandaged in a billion NDAs, I doubt we'll hear more. It seems like New Yorker may have done some irresponsible fabricating, splicing and embellishing of their own. Relying on the blind faith is uh, its readership has in the magazine's editorial rigour. Minaj said himself that it's no small affair to take fake uh, racist experience and that if he had read the article as uh, someone else, he would assume that his subject is a psycho. In my take, I accuse him of being golem-like. And, uh, and manically obsessed with clout and self-aggrandizement myself. Figures like Hassan Minaj 
uh, hold a special place in the quotidian practices that keep our attention on the structures and injustices that we must disrupt and replace if we wish to live in what Adrian Marie Brown calls right relationship with our world and each other. While we do whatever we have to do to survive under late capitalism, we trust them to gather the stories they believe we need to hear and show us that we have some power to tilt the quantum content of the day towards greater justice and equity. Menage is burdened by the self-appointed responsibility of being a guiding light, which is too great a responsibility to be messy or lazy with, and he was both, though perhaps not to the same extent as Claire Malone would have us believe what would she have us believe, however, and why. In my post, I specified that I was most interested in looking at Hassan Minaj as a figure and a case study for Muslim Americans as a Muslim American. His irresponsibility in differentiating one thing from the other and being accused of being a liar allows for the gaslighting of Muslims everywhere as to the severity of Islamophobia and racism they experience and to become more conservative in their own expression if Minhaj can come under such sharp attack. I was so busy being shocked, uh, being a shocked auntie and giving him a good scolding, inviting that I didn't think about what the what made the New Yorker see this particular issue as exigent. Great word, forgot what it means. Partly because Malone never explained it. Muslim America is not Claire Malone's primary audience or point of view. What in this piece for the New Yorker? What's in this? What's in this piece for the New Yorker? The only part of the article I could find that gestures uh, towards a larger point beyond Hassan Minaj, uh, the person, is here. Quote, Comedians might not be comfortable calling themselves anything but comedians, uh, but a number of them, Minaj included, have inserted themselves pointedly into political conversation. They've become the oddball public intellectuals of our time, and in the form of the public, they assume a certain uh, status as moral arbiters. When fibs are told to prove a social point rather than uh, to elicit an easy laugh, does their moral weight change? Unquote. The average reader of the New Yorker is mostly likely middle class, well-educated and white. Think about the stakes of declaring to this audience that the beloved Muslim American millennial public intellectual, the one who supports Black Lives Matter, critiques capitalism, and demands that the United States hold itself accountable for its capitalist rapaciousness, can't be taken seriously. Hassan uh, asked in his video rebuttal why Malone didn't gather data on the ratio between facts and embellishment. Is comparable stand-up comedy uh, incomparable stand-up comedy to assess a larger question about the genre and moral weight? What if Malone had teamed up with a specialist in comedy and done a deep dive in the routines of Hassan Minaj, Hannah Gadsby, Trevor Noah, Chris Rock, John Leguizamo, and Tig Notaro to look at the implications of fact versus embellishment in stand-up comedy and the communication of emotional truth? Wouldn't we be having a different? Wouldn't we be having a different conversation? But we're not. We're having a conversation about how the most prominent mainstream Muslim American voice, who happens to dare le- dare to lean hard left, is a liar, a hypocrite, an overly dramatic attention whore who will stop at nothing to aggrandize himself. I can see how, in someone's subconscious, it logically follows that his people, the ones we're uh, we're giving our tax dollars to bomb out of existence like the people of Iraq and Afghanistan, are all liars whose pain is grossly overstated. Biden claimed last week that he had no confidence in the numbers of casualties and deaths provided by Gaza's health ministry, uh, though the same ministry's data has been trusted by the US State Department, United Nations, and several other governments in the past. Palestinian death, the implied he implied in the same speech, is, quote, the cost of waging war, unquote. Malone played into this very old traditions, in the very old traditions of discrediting dissenting Muslim voices, 
gaslighting a brown man for saying his experiences had something to do with racism and accusing him instead of being an angry incel projecting his insecurities onto an innocent white lady whom he would not stop punishing for his rejection. If the story of how American Orientalism discredits Arabs and Muslims as dramatic, stupid, rapacious and greedy is new to you uh, or has not been exposed to you explicitly, consider this hour-long documentary, Real Bad Arabs, which I assigned to students when they first re-read uh, Stuart said. And there's a link to it if you want to spin. I wrote about the soul-crushing pressure of upward mobility imposed on so many South Asian diasporans. The voice that says... We do have to work twice as hard to get half the credit. When we get too much credit, we must work ten times harder to ensure that they won't take it from us by coming for our character. No mistakes, no weaknesses, no character flaws that result in poor work product. The consequences are never just about you. Hassan Minhaj did shoddy work by not creating separate enough characters uh, across comedic and political storytelling. The Empire rebuked Hassan. Uh, Hassan with a feather in the form of Claire Malone and damn near destroyed his career. Hassan Minaj's mistakes are not like other comedians' mistakes, sadly. He can't have serial formal issues in his delivery without being used as a psychological pawn in the game of dehumanising his old commentary. That's not his fault, but it is his lot, and I feel for him. His representative, he rep, he's representative of us, South Asian Americans, Muslim Americans, brown immigrant folk. That way to, that way to, and the problems uh, that we navigate in our workplaces, boardrooms, Zoom rooms, etc. We shouldn't have the right to fuck up, to be a little mediocre sometimes, but we don't, and I guess it and harshly criticise for our ingratitude when we screw up anyway. I'm enraged, and no matter how we slice it, brother's got to tighten it up because the stakes are different for him, for us, uh, and that's especially true right now. I need Hassan Minaj's voice, and I need it now. I need him to get off his skinny butt and jump around on his fluorescent squares, bombard me with infographics and model ways to absolutely refuse to shut the fuck up, even if he gets it wrong sometimes, even if it, he gets kicked for it. I need him to keep doing it as even as it hurts, as the battles get harder and weirder, and the white ladies who wanted to shut up to come out in droves. I need him to go back to being moral arbiter and simply be better at it. I trust that his setback will make him more thoughtful, precise, and rigorous going forward. Perhaps New Yorker did him a favour by giving him the jolt he needed to be sharper, funnier, and more interesting as a comedian. He needed the lesson in being more discerning, and apparently the lesson in being harder to tear down. A horrible experience, I'm sure, but child's play compared to the bigger issues in the world now. He will recover, and he must. He needs to be funnier. Stop going for low-hanging fruit about how chai tea is redundant, and instead go for the, after the insidious ubiquity of the companies that benefit from the mass murder of stateless Palestinian civilians. I need him to go after the New Yorker and its history of pandering to the fears of black and brown planet. It's true, South Asian diasporans and and Muslims should get to be bad at things, like white people get to be bad at things, and get to fuck up here and there as we go along without devastating consequences, but we don't. Perhaps he will help us break that pattern. I hope that for him, and I'm rooting for him, but for now, I'm just angry and exhausted that New Yorker wasted everyone's time, especially Hassan Minaj's, whose credibility was discounted just in time for a global resurgence in Islamophobia. When we need him and his power the most. Excellent work, Claire Malone and the New Yorker. You get this week's Colonizer Gold Star. 
Oh, that's very funny. That was a very funny ending. Um, but yes, I think I think that was a very apt piece. Um, yeah, very good, very well worded, and um, you know, just re- you know, just adding on to um, the commentary. I think very well um, of Hassan Minaj, and I, you know, I agree. I feel like you know there are. I feel, <coughs> excuse me. There are there are times where there are times where I see you know people be. Um, <laughs> People, people want lives, right? Pe- you know, even even artists and and comedians, especially, right? They want to live their lives as well as you know making change. Um, I'm sure, I'm sure, Hassan Minaj, you know, wants change, and you know, he's been in Congress, you know, uh, trying to talk about certain things like student debt, for example. Um, you know, I th- I feel like he puts in the effort. Um, I feel like a lot of artists I follow put in the effort. Um, but they also want to have regular lives at the same time, right? And they want, and they also want breaks from stuff. And they also, you know, just want to be human as themselves, right? I get that. Um, and, you know, I feel, you know, I was very heavily put on at the end there. Of just like, you know, I need to thumb in to to be, you know, this uh, this shining light. And, you know, I get it. And uh, I, I understand. And I, I, I'm sure, that, I'm sure I have, I can name plenty of, um, people that I feel can be just really good if they kept speaking and kept, you know, putting in the effort. Um, but the issue is you can't leave it on one person. There shouldn't be just one Hassan Minaj. There can't there shouldn't be just one Muslim American com- stand up comedian doing this. Um and obviously, you know, I feel like Hassan as a comedian is very unique. Um I feel like, you know, he really has um he really has a interesting way of going about things um uh he's a very visual storyteller and i appreciate that i like that um it, it, it pleases my millennial brain uh, to see visuals of graphs and stuff it, it makes me happy right um but you know it's a it's it's one person and um you know i've never operated on the on the concept that one person can change everything um i've never operated on that it needs other people to do so um, but yeah, I do think um, there are. <sighs> I don't mind celebrities talking up, and I feel like that you know gets to the excuse me that gets to the conversation of um, you know celebrities talking, and a lot of people, especially during um, twenty twenty, there were a lot of times where you know I heard my friends, um, especially my American friends, saying celebrities need to just shut the fuck up, right? And I get it, um, and. They don't need to shut the fuck up. They just need to fucking read. I don't think people... I don't think... You know, not just celebrities. I feel like, you know, a lot of us don't read. I don't read. I read these articles. Um, and that's you know, that's um, not my extent, I would like to say. Um, but, you know, it's a lot. It's a significant chunk from, from my weekly intake. Um, I read these articles because I'm interested in them. And, and this platform gives me the reason to actually read. Um, and that's all this is. It's me reading. Um, and reacting to shit, but do you, I, I asked my boy, I asked my boy the other day, I was like, what was the last, when was the last time you read something that wasn't just like, you know, Lord of the Rings, was, that wasn't like fiction, and also wasn't just ac- academic to the point where it obviously benefits your education, because he does like accounting stuff, and that's why this, he reads accounting books back to front, right, um, but you know, when's the last time he read something like, you know, an autobiography of Malcolm X, right, or something like that, and he said, don't know, right? He said probably years ago, and I'm like, there you go. That's the point I'm making. Um, 
people just don't read. Celebrities don't fucking read. Like, it's that LeBron James meme of him feigning reading Malcolm X, right? And I don't. He hasn't read Malcolm X. He hasn't. I challenge him to 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 actually give a report on on Malcolm X and 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 the book itself because the book is fucking great. I highly recommend it. It's one of my favorite books of all time. But I don't think people read that kind of stuff. People don't read like that. And I feel like, you know, that's a that's an important part of it. I don't know why this has gotten to read um, as a moral of the story. But, you know, I feel like relying on one person is um, is obviously just a bit, a bit excessive. But I get it in terms of the point of the story. I completely agree and I get where he's coming from. So shout out to him. Um, I'm gonna find dude's name um, <laughs> when I actually tweet this uh, show out, um, but I'm not. Uh, but shout to Pain Baby, I guess. I don't know. It's <laughs> the only thing with Substacks. Like they have all these like weird ass names, and I'm like, yeah, but what's your name though? Like, <laughs> oh, so funny. But anyway, ladies and gentlemen, we shall leave it there from the Fifth Film Podcast Network. I've been Charlie Tone. This been what's good. Intro music was too much by Vanilla. Thanks to your music for a bit of use. You can find both the links in the full show notes. Thanks to Fred of Ivy Nappy High for being charismatic for the interlude. You can also find his link in the full show notes. And with that said, I hope you all have a good week. I shall always try and do the same. But until the next time, take it easy. Ladies and gentlemen.